So we are going to be in Isaiah 11 and 12. The good news is that there's not a whole lot of verses there. The better news is that I have time then because of, uh, of just that few verses. I have time for some tangents. I have time to, to chase a few rabbits. And uh, so I'd like to chase a couple of rabbits. Rabbit number one, I'd like to talk about the exile just for a minute. Now, what do we know about the exile? That's about, what, 80 years? 70 uh, or then some? Babylon, there were two of them. Uh, there were two exiles and maybe three. Assyria may have deported some people as well, but certainly Babylon had two uh, separate deportations. Um, what else do we know about them? Let me blow your mind for a second. When the earth was new, Adam and Eve were placed in a garden of perfection, a garden of Eden. And they were told, you have one rule. You have one thing that you should honor, that you should keep in mind. You, you should honor the covenant that God has placed over you, and you should honor the one commandment, the one restriction that he gave you. They did not. And so they were what? They were exiled. Yeah, so so exile is, is a theme from the very beginning that we are meant to live in promise, which means we are meant to live in security and hope under the protection of God's covenant. And because we are human and because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we keep putting ourselves in places of exile. We, we live today in, a, in exile because we live today in a culture that is hostile and a culture that is toxic and a, and a culture that I don't imagine is a whole lot different than what Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego felt like when they looked around Babylon after they were deported to the king's palace. And so uh, tangent number one, A, exile is a theme throughout scripture. So the history books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they have sort of a, a, a soft theme of exile, Adam and Eve. Uh, by the way, uh, here's, a, here's one for you Bible scholars. After Adam and Eve, after Cain and Abel, after Noah, there was an incident that most people see as the marker of the end of the, the creation story in Genesis chapter 11. The Tower of 
Babel. Now, don't jump to Babel and Babylon because Babel meant chatter. However, if you look closely in Genesis chapter 11, uh, the scripture tells us that in the Tower of Babel incident, it says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And the people migrated from the east. They found a plain in the land of Shinar, S-H-I-N-A-R. Does anybody's Bible have a little note as to where that was? Shinar. Babylonia. Yep. So Shinar, where the people gathered, where they migrated, it was uh, uh, one of the most fertile, rich, uh, sustainable valleys in, in all of the known world. It was in the Tigris and Euphrates valleys. And we would call it Mesopotamia or Babylonia. And so even back in Genesis chapter 11, when the original humans were exiled from Babylon, from Garden of Eden, and then the flood, the boat lands on Ararat, and the people begin to develop language and end up in Babylon. So even then, they migrated towards this place that would become a symbol in the scripture of, uh, of evil, a symbol of uh, being out of, uh, uh, out of step with the covenant of God. And so in, uh, in the exile, I, I, I want to make sure that we understand that it's a pretty big deal. Yeah, Bill? Wasn't also the Garden of Eden supposed to be somewhere right? The Garden of Eden was likely somewhere in that area. Yeah. We uh, Bill asked, wasn't the Garden of Eden somewhere in the Fertile Triangle over there, the Mesopotamian uh, plain? Likely it was. Uh, it's, of course, unknown. But uh, from all the indications in the scripture, it feels like it was there. So then... If you remember that Abraham migrated from the land of Ur, and he was told by God to go to a land that I will show you. Guess where Abraham was when he was told to leave? Mesopotamia. So he, he was in that general area where Genesis 11 and the plain of Shinar, Mesopotamia, Babylon. He was in that general region. And God said, it's time for you to head back west and go to a land that I will show you. And if you have gone to Israel with us, you may or may not remember that we went to a little place called Dan and the Dan Nature Preserve. And we usually stop and see something called Abraham's Gate, which is a 3,000-year-old or 6,000-year-old or 5,000, whatever. Nobody really knows. But it was the, the gate that was built by Abraham when he first entered the promised land. 
from the far northeast. So he would have come into what we now call Israel. He would have crossed the the, uh, headwaters of the Jordan, actually the runoff waters from Mount Hermon. I looked up Mount Hermon on the map the other day just because I was kind of curious about this. And I looked on a modern map and it blew my mind because it showed the ski resort that's there. And I'm going, wait, 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 what, a ski resort in Israel? Yeah, Mount Hermon has snow almost year-round. And uh, during the the winter months, it's quite a robust little ski resort on the side of it. I've never taken a pilgrimage to Israel and ended up snow skiing, but maybe, maybe. So anyway, Abraham would then have come south into Canaan or, or the promised land and, and begun to settle. So, so this theme of exile is throughout uh, the scriptures. In Deuteronomy 31, as Moses uh, sort of gave his farewell speech, the scripture says in Deuteronomy 31, 15 and 16, then the Lord appeared at the tent of the pillar of the tent in a pillar of cloud and stood over the entrance. And the Lord said to Moses, you are going to rest with your ancestors. And these people will soon prostitute themselves to foreign gods of the land they are entering. They will forsake me and break the covenant I made with them. Now, for just a second, keep in mind, we've already had an exile of Adam and Eve. We've already had an exile of the the Hebrews into Egypt. We've already had an exodus of the Hebrew children out of Egypt and towards the promised land. So this this theme of exile just keeps repeating itself. Alan? Yeah. Wouldn't you consider Moses had an exile? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you sort of skipped over him, but, you know, he was over there yeah. for years. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Moses, uh, well, Joseph, um, I, I think it'd be fair to say that Joseph had an exile. Yeah. Where Joseph was uh, sold by his brothers into slavery, ended up in Egypt. But but the idea of the national exile, mm-hmm. uh, the whole nation, uh, uh, there, when Moses died, God said through him to the people, yeah, you're going to go into the promised land finally. And you're going to settle there and you're going to build houses and you're going to build cities. You're going to prosper, but then you're going to forget me. Here's why it it really got to me. Isaiah is, of course, predicting in our passage today, he's predicting the Babylonian exile. Maybe even the Assyrian exile. We're not really sure exactly when this early part of Isaiah was written. It could have been written even as the Assyrians were beginning to conquer the northern kingdom. But by the end of the book of 2 Kings, okay, everybody still with me? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. 
So, so the history books, by the time we get to the end of Second Kings, both the northern and the southern kingdom had been conquered. Remember, the Bible is not chronological in the way that it's laid out. So first and second kings talk about the exile. They talk about the, the bad behavior of the kings of both the northern and the southern kingdom. Kings and chronicles talk about that. And so the, the exodus is, uh, is an historical reality, even in second kings, second chronicles. So then let's talk about the prophets that talked about the exile. Let's talk about all the books of the Bible that deal with the exile. Here's, here's where it just absolutely fascinates me. Now, let me, let me go on a tangent within a tangent and remind you that the northern kingdom fell to Assyria, but Babylon really wasn't interested in the northern kingdom. By the time that Babylon conquered Jerusalem and, and Judah, the northern kingdom was kind of starting to recover. They were virtually untouched by the Babylonians because the Babylonians just weren't all that interested in, in what, what we call Israel. So Israel is the northern kingdom. Judah is the southern kingdom. So the, by the time of the Babylonians, the northern kingdom had begun to intermarry with some of the Assyrians that stayed there. They had some probably tried to hang on to their religious practices, but we know that pagan syncretism was heavily mixed in. So, so when the Babylonians attacked the southern kingdom in 587, by then the northern kingdom was 150 years past the Assyrian invasion, and they were kind of living life. Now, they weren't they weren't the northern kingdom. They weren't the covenant-keeping people anymore. But there were probably pockets that were trying to keep the covenant. So when Isaiah speaks to the southern kingdom, remember, he's prophesying in Judah and Jerusalem. A lot of his messages don't let what happened up north happen down here. You guys still have time to keep the covenant, to change your ways, to forsake idols. You, you have time. The Lord will spare you. And then somewhere around Isaiah chapter 39, we understand that the southern kingdom has fallen and the exile has begun. But Isaiah is long dead by then. I mean, that's what he says in Isaiah 39 is futuristic predictive prophecy, by the time those things came to pass, Isaiah was long gone. Have I really messed anybody up yet? Hallelujah. Listen, this is interesting to me. I made a list today of all of the books that have to do with the exile, the Babylonian exile, Second Kings, Second Chronicles, Esther, Jonah, Amos, Hosea, Micah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Haggai, 
Nehemiah, Zechariah, Malachi, Ezra. All of those are books that instruct pre-exile, during the exile, after the exile. So if I'm a good Bible teacher, I have to take this tangent to say, looming over most of the Old Testament is this thing called the exile. And the thing that I believe that God wants us to see in here is that, as I said a minute ago, exile is kind of where we do our best work. When we get comfortable, when we start mixing in some foreign idols and materialism and, and sensual uh, imagery and, uh, and we start treating people as commodities and stratifying culture into the haves and the have-nots and, and, and morality and injustice, those are the things that anger God. And we're going to see that in just a minute in Isaiah 12. The, uh, Isaiah writes the poem. He says, God, thank you that your anger has, has gone away. Your anger has abated. And so God is angry when we live like we need to be sin in exile. There was a, a book, I know I've mentioned it before. Calvin Miller wrote it. And it's a fictitious letter exchange between two pretend bishops in the first century, and they were supposedly pastors of local churches. And one of them was a pastor of a church in a suburb of Rome. And he said, uh, it just really hadn't been the same around here since they sent the lions away. <laughs> as long as the lions are here, there's this, there's this threat that sort of separates the authentic from the impossible. As long as there's a threat of exile, as long as we are aware that Stanley Hauerwas, a theologian, he called us resident aliens. We're here, but we don't belong here. And if we ever start getting comfortable here, if we ever start feeling like the toxicity in the culture is just the way it is, so I might as well make the most of it. I found out something today I had not known before. One scholar says that, Gary, and, and back to your 80 or 70 years, one scholar suggested that the Israelites could have returned from Babylon to Jerusalem as short as 48 years into the exile. Now, we know that, that the prophecy was 70 years. That's what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 29.10, when 70 years are completed for Babylon. But they had the opportunity to return a lot earlier. But they adjusted. The Babylonians were, were pretty loose as long as you didn't cross them. So the Israelites were able to buy property and start businesses and build houses and, and entertain commerce and, and basically build the society they had back in Jerusalem just in Babylon. And that was one of the, the points of the exile is that Babylon wanted to elevate the culture, the sophistication. So, Bill, a minute ago you said there were two deportations. You're right. First deportation was the leaders, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. 
They were deported with leaders, the brightest, the best, the moral leadership, the spiritual leadership, the infrastructure leadership, the the, the politicians, the lawyers, the guides, the teachers. And then the next wave of deportation, the Babylonians went, oh, we need some laborers to build all of our construction projects. So the second wave, the second deportation was the common folk, and now they took the strongest and the the most robust. And so they left the sickly and the lack, the unmotivated, the, the ones who weren't leaders, they weren't pretty, they weren't strong, left all of them behind and said, y'all do the best you can. My point, and I'm, pardon me for the length of this tangent, we can't understand Isaiah unless we understand the exile. We can't even understand the Old Testament unless we understand the exile. And so this theme of God challenged us to keep his covenant, and he promised to take care of us. He didn't promise that to a nation except Israel. And even within the nation of Israel, do you remember Isaiah's first prophecy in chapter 1? God says, I've got a message for you. That's the good news. The bad news is that nobody will pay attention to it. Nobody will listen to you. Nobody will do what you're telling them to do. So God's design seems to be that everything about faith is built around a remnant. We shouldn't ever expect to be in a majority. We shouldn't ever be able to legislate Christianity through political means. Because that's not God's plan. God's plan is that there is a remnant. And we're going to read about that tonight. That there is a a small uh, group within the group, uh, a minority. When Jesus uh, uh, was getting... Uh, one writer said about Jesus, as the cross got nearer, the crowds got fewer. And at one point, Jesus looked to the disciples. He said, are you guys going to leave too? So faith with our God has always been about a remnant. It's always been about a minority. It's always been about a group within a group. It's never about a a nation. It's never about a a community, and we're going to see that with some of the pronouns in Isaiah tonight. Yes, we're going to talk about pronouns. So uh, I, I'll, I'll leave that tangent alone. I had some other tangents that I could go on, um, recap of Isaiah, but let's dive into uh, chapter 12, and then we'll back into chapter 11, because chapter 11 is what I'm going to preach not this Sunday, but next Sunday, when we start our Promises Kept part of the Isaiah series. Everybody know what we're doing? So this week is the last in the Behold Your God series, the mini-series, the prequel series, Isaiah. And then next week, we start our Advent series that deals with the promises that are in Isaiah that point us to Jesus. So next week, we'll start Promises Kept, 
and we'll look at promise number one from Isaiah chapter 11. So let's look at chapter 12, and then if we have time, we'll back up into chapter 11. So chapter 12 is the last chapter of the first section of the first part of Isaiah. Remember, part one of Isaiah is 1 through 39. Well, there are three sections within Isaiah part one, and one chapters 1 through 12, they make up the first section. Another tangent that I would go on if I had time, but I'll just say it in a sentence. We've got to remember that Isaiah is not linear but it's cyclical. So the events that unfold and even the prophecies are not meant to be this happened, then this happened, then this happened. It's a cycle of judgment and deliverance, uh, judgment, consequence, deliverance. It's almost like the, the judges, the book of the judges. There's a, the, and so we get this cycle. We, we feel like that God is pronouncing hope. And here in chapter 12, we've got a praise song. We, we've got, and things are lovely. And yet we've got another 27 chapters of Isaiah reminding us that things are not lovely. Yes, God has a plan. And the, the plan that God has is pretty much summed up in one word, Emmanuel. God with us. So in chapter 12, we have a praise song that Isaiah wrote. It's almost like he stopped and said, okay, God, I, I'm just depressed. Uh, all this judgment, I need some good news for the people. And so God gave him a praise song. And so in chapter 12, verse 1, you will say in that day, now, what's the code when we see in that day? Something in the future. It's either in the near future, the distant future, or the end of time. But when he says in that day, that's a code word to say it's not happening right now. So the, 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 the judgment of God is still being felt by the people. Now, we don't know for sure if it's the Assyrian exile or the Babylonian exile. We just know that Isaiah writes under the threat of conquering armies. And that everybody who is a prophet or a religious leader associates the invasion of these armies as a consequence for Israel not keeping the covenant. They knew what was going on. Okay? When I, when I get pulled over by a policeman and I was doing 120 miles an hour, I don't have to wonder what this is about. <laughs> he, he's not there just to say hello. And Israel knew that there had been uh, a, a covenant breaking season. And so he says, you will say in that day. Now look again at chapter 12, verse one, the you there is singular. It's a singular pronoun, you. So you will say 
in that day. You individuals will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. And I love the way this is phrased in light of the singular. I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me. You remember what Isaiah said in chapter 6? Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. So the you there is singular. There is a, a person who's taken personal responsibility here. He understands that God is angry with him. And he understands why. God is angry when he sees idolatry. God is angry when he sees immorality and injustice. When we, when we treat somebody poorly because of the color of their skin or because they're poor or because they speak a different language. When we don't think that marriage is between a man and a woman. When we don't think that babies deserve our protection in the womb. God is angry. His wrath is there. Sin is presence. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. So, so the, the individual is right to say, God is angry. Now, that's not unusual uh, for us to, to associate uh, anger with God's work. What did Jesus do in the temple the first time he was there? He made a whip. He turned the tables over. It wasn't because he didn't like lasagna. He said, you turned my father's house into a den of thieves. You, you've, you've created idolatry here in the presence of God. And, and he wasn't having it. He was angry. Um, and so God, we, we've got to understand that God's anger, God's wrath is aimed at us in our sin. And it is not until we confess and are forgiven that God's anger against that sin is abated. That's what the song, that's what Isaiah says. Though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. The, the used singular, then there's the divine pronoun, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. The word for Lord there is Yah, Y-A-H. Yahweh is the what we usually transliterate it, but that's the personal. Okay, that's the that's the you reach down into my sinful heart. Uh, though I was red like crimson, I will be as white as snow. So then he says, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. He says, behold, God is my salvation. God is my salvation. Again, the singular pronoun, the hymn of praise, individuals are standing to declare the glory of God, to declare thanksgiving. 
You remember this week is the third in the series. The first week, the great, the glory of God. The second week, the greatness of God. This week, the gratitude due God. So verse one, you will say in that day, I give thanks to you, O God. I, I personally, individual, I give thanks because you were anger and you're not angry anymore. You are comforting me. And, and the, the only thing that's there is that the individual did what Isaiah did. He confessed, I'm a man of unclean lips. God took the coal. He forgave him. He said, your, your guilt is atoned. Your sin is forgiven. And so in chapter uh, 12, verse 2, he says, behold, God is my salvation. My salvation. Sometimes it is ironic to me. Whenever we're talking about someone who does not know the Lord, we describe them how? Lost. They're lost. But when we say, I found the Lord, we say, I'm saved. Well, the opposite of lost is found. It's not saved. Jesus found us. We, we're like a prisoner of war that he recaptured. He, he brought us back from the captivity of the enemy. You are my salvation. God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God, Yahweh, is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. I hope that the first two weeks in the series are informative here, because it's only on the basis of the greatness of God and the glory of God that we can experience salvation. If if I am rescued from the enemy, it's because a force more powerful than the enemy liberated. Think about a concentration camp in World War II and how the Jews who were behind those fences celebrated when they saw the liberating allied forces and they realized that a force more powerful than that which had held them had come to liberate them. That's what the Isaiah is saying. Here. He's saying, God is my salvation. Not I'm saved. Not I, I've decided to follow Jesus. God is my salvation. God has reached down. He has plucked me out of my concentration camp of sin. And I'm going to trust. I'm not going to be afraid anymore. I'm not behind any lines anymore. The Lord God is my strength. He is my song. He has become my salvation. Some of the theologians that are um, called Reformed or Calvinists, they take issue with the idea that I could ever decide to follow Jesus, that I could ever, my free will would ever come into play. Because God is the one who saves. God is the one. Who, and, and at that point, I agree. But God loves me enough to let me have 
that opportunity to confess my sins and move towards it. And, and that's what Isaiah is saying here. With joy, you. Now, you is still, uh, is now plural. So in chapter 12, verse 3, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Now there's a, a plural, there's a community kind of feel. And you, we, y'all, will say in that day, back to verse 1, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Give thanks. Show gratitude. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. There are four imperatives there. Give thanks. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds. Proclaim that his name is exalted. So chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 sets up the scenario and then chapter 12, verse 3 and 4, uh, talk about the response. So individually, he saves us. He is our salvation. Another tangent, but I'm a little ADD. You remember in Psalm 51, when David is praying, is confessing his sin with Bathsheba? And he says, create in me a clean heart, O God. Restore uh, a willing spirit or a right spirit in me. Pass me not away from thy presence. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. Too often you've probably heard a preacher misread it. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. That's not what it says. It says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. You're the one who gave you are my strength. You are my song. You are my salvation. And so as a result, we, community of faith, we are told to give thanks. We're told to call upon his name, make his deeds known among the people, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy. Um, the, the reason that we don't look at verse 5 and 6 as imperatives is that they're sort of a modifier of verse 4. How do we proclaim his name? How do we proclaim that his name is exalted? By singing praises. Now, the structure of the last uh, some might call it a verse, like chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, that's verse 1. 3 and 4 is verse 2. 5 and 6 is verse 3. The structure of verse 3 is interesting. There is a, 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 a command and a reason for it. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Shout and sing for joy. For great in your midst is the Holy One. I think that's where I want to end. I'll, I'll let you work through chapter 11 on your own and just wait for me to preach it Sunday after this one. This week we're talking about gratitude. Next week we talk about um, 
the scripture as it leads to an, an understanding of Messiah. But think for a second about the very last line we just read. Isaiah is all excited. I'm going to give thanks to the Lord. You are angry. You're no longer angry. You comfort me. You comfort me. You are my salvation. I'm not afraid. You're comforting me. I'm not afraid. You're my strength, my song. You're my salvation. In that day, see chapter uh, 12, verse 4. Um, it repeats the in that day of verse 1. In that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds. Proclaim. Sing praises. Shout. Why can we do this? Because he's in our midst. You remember the, the key word for Isaiah? Emmanuel. God is with us. God is in our midst. And guess what the pronouns do on that last verse? It goes back singular. God is in my midst. It's a singular pronoun. Great in our midst is the Holy One of Israel. How do your translations read that? Is in your midst. Anybody else have a different? Uh, I'm reading English Standard. Anybody got a different translation? Uh, 12, 6, the last line. Yeah, I have Holy One among you. Among you in our midst. Acts mightily among you. Who lives among you. What Isaiah has done here is that he's, he's come full circle. Yes, God is in our midst. Yes, he is with us. Uh, I, you know, whenever I get help on a project with somebody who knows better than I do how to fix a car or how to do woodwork or how to do something, uh, I, I remember saying more than once, I couldn't have done this without I didn't have what it takes to do this, but you helped my hands be what I could never be without your knowledge, without your skill, without your presence. And what Isaiah is saying here is you are the Holy One of Israel and you would condescend to be with me. You would, you would send your seraphim to put a coal on my lips. You are great. You're glorious. You, you mark the heavens with a span. And yet you are among us. Emmanuel, God with us. It's a great, great prophecy. So he's foretelling. Absolutely, he's foretelling. That's, that's the, the purpose of the prophecy. But, but we've got to understand he is with us in our exile. He is with us in our exile. And so the reason I talked about the exile is we can't understand Isaiah without that. But once we understand that, that we are in exile because we communal, we individual have not kept the covenant. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
We are in exile. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, in exile, away from his covenant, apart from his presence, Christ died for us. So yes, Skip, he is setting us up to understand the Messiah. That's why I wanted to do these three sessions before we launched into the prophecies that directly relate to the Son of God. But the key word in Isaiah, Emmanuel. God is in our midst. The Holy One of Israel is in our midst. All right, we ready for Sunday? I will uh, not see you next week, but uh, we'll be in touch through the mailing list. Uh, you've got my email. Don't uh, think you don't need to email me if you've got a question or or something that we can kind of ponder together. That would be a lot of fun. But I will see you back on camera and in the room January the 4th.